This week, Claire settles with UCC, but fight continues with Oak Tree. Pacific Drilling releases competing bankruptcy proposals, and Toy settles with North American parties. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distress, debt, and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lung, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. And I'm Stephen Opper. This week, legal analyst Teresa Lee sat down with Reorg First Day team, Jessica Steinhagen and Ian Howland, to discuss bankruptcy trends in the second quarter and first half of 2018. It's Sunday, July 22nd. The bankruptcy saga of Claire's stores continued this week as the debtors reached a major agreement with the UCC and Ad Hoc First Lien Group, but objector Oak Tree was excluded. The agreement reached with the UCC creates and increases cash pools available for distribution on account of general unsecured, unsecured note holder, and secured deficiency claims. At a hearing on Friday, Judge Mary Walrath overruled Oak Tree's objections and approved Claire's disclosure statement setting up a multi-day confirmation trial. Judge Walrath reserved the entire week of September 17th for the confirmation trial. During the disclosure statement hearing, it was learned that Oak Tree made an alternative plan proposal to the debtors that would contemplate a lump-sum cash payment or take-back paper for the first liens. According to Oak Tree's counsel, the financing for this alternative proposal is not fully committed, but he is, quote, confident that Oak Tree will have the financing by August 31st. On Thursday, Oak Tree filed a motion seeking derivative standing to avoid and recover fraudulent transfers from the CLSIP transactions. These transactions contributed intellectual property from debtor CBI distributing to non-debtor subsidiaries, CLSIP holdings in 2016. Oak Tree contends that the successful avoidance of CBI's transfer of the Claire's IP will generate more than $170 million an additional distributable value for all creditors of the debtor's estates, including the second lien creditor's deficiency claims and the claims of other general unsecured creditors. The Pacific Drilling Chapter 11 cases saw on Tuesday the disclosure of competing revised proposals from majority shareholder Quantum Pacific and certain senior secured credit facility lenders on the one hand and the ad hoc group of secured lenders on the other. The filing states that, quote, there is no consensus currently among the company and its stakeholders as to the terms of any plan of reorganization, unquote. According to the ad hoc group's presentation, non-ad hoc group bondholders would obtain a 48% recovery under the group's proposal, assuming a $2.25 billion total enterprise value and full participation in the $500 million equity rights offering contemplated under the proposal. The revised QP proposal would provide greater recoveries to the minority 2018 and 2020 note holders, with those notes receiving a recovery of between 40% and 41%, according to Quantum Pacific. In a recent filing, the Pacific drilling debtors said that they were, quote, tantalizingly close, end quote, to reaching consensus with the members of the ad hoc group and the QP group on the terms of a plan of reorganization. The debtors also noted that they had received, quote, increasingly favorable, end quote, proposals from both groups. The debtors said that they intend to file a Chapter 11 plan by July 31st, which is, quote, the proposed end, end quote, of their exclusive filing period. A hearing on the exclusivity extension motion is scheduled for July 26th. 
the Toys R Us debtors filed a motion seeking approval of, quote, comprehensive settlement between the North American debtors, an ad hoc group of B4 lenders holding approximately 47% of DIP claims and 68% of prepetition secured claims, the UCC, and certain members of the creditors committee in their capacity as holders of administrative claims. The Taj debtors, parent of international entities, are not parties to the settlement. Among other things, the settlement agreement resolves potential claims and causes of action that could be asserted by the UCC on behalf of the debtors' estates or by other parties against the B4 lenders. The agreement contemplates a full paydown of the North American term loan dip facility and the prepetition secured lenders receiving all remaining value from the North American debtors until paid in full, except as otherwise indicated in the settlement agreement. Holders of administrative claims who do not opt out would share pro rata and a baseline recovery of $180 million, an incremental shared recovery with the prepetition secured lenders if the aggregate recovery of the B4 lenders from Toys, Delaware, and Wayne exceeds 50%. Continuing with the North America wind-down, the debtors filed notices of successful and backup bidders for its second and third wave property auctions. In total, the debtors announced aggregate bids of almost $300 million for 15 stores and four distribution centers. In an opinion issued last Friday, Chief Judge Susan Braden of the U.S. Court of Federal Claims denied the U.S. government's motion to dismiss the amended complaint by ERS bondholder plaintiffs asserting a takings clause claim under the U.S. Constitution. The judge concluded that the court has jurisdiction to adjudicate the claim. Most notably, Judge Braden concluded that the PROMESA Oversight Board is an entity of the federal government, and as such, quote, the takings clause claim alleged in the October 31, 2017 amended complaint is not an action against the Oversight Board. Instead, it is an action against the United States. The ERS bondholders and U.S. government subsequently filed competing statements regarding whether and to what extent this portion of the decision is in conflict with the ruling issued by Judge Laura Taylor Swain earlier last Friday, July 13th, regarding the appointments clause challenge brought by Aurelius. In her ruling, Judge Swain held that the Oversight Board is an instrumentality of the territory of Puerto Rico. On Tuesday, Aurelius filed a notice of appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit regarding Judge Swain's July 13th appointments clause decision. In her ruling, Judge Swain denied Aurelius' motion to dismiss the Commonwealth's Title III petition, as well as its motion for relief from the automatic stay. Judge Swain determined that the members of the Oversight Board are not, quote, officers of the United States, subject to the Appointments Clause. In addition, Jose F. Ortiz was named chief of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, or PREPA, after CEO Walter Higgins announced his retirement and five members of the PREPA board resigned in the midst of a dispute with the governor over the salary proposed for Higgins' successor. Ortiz, a former PREPA board chairman and Puerto Rico Aqueduct and Sewer Authority executive president, said that there is a, quote, well-established path for what needs to happen at PREPA. But first, the authority has to emerge from bankruptcy. Ortiz declined to estimate when PREPA could exit Title III through a plan of adjustment, but he said it should be, quote, as soon as possible. Other top-read stories of the week were, number one, new middle market coverage of CPI card, hires Lazard amid industry headwinds. Number two, American Tire Distributors Term Loan Group, selects Hulahan Loki, Paul Weiss. And number three, Seadrill announces receipt of $248 million from Tullow following English High Court of Ward. 
Unfortunately, both Jim and Angelo are out this week, so for the week ahead, you're stuck with me and Stephen for a little bit longer. Thanks, Karen. The U.S. Bank v. Windstream trial kicks off on Monday, July 23rd in downtown Manhattan. The trial and dispute, which focuses on Windstream's 2015 sale leaseback transaction and recent note exchanges, is expected to run for five days. New MockGen has combined disclosure statement and planned confirmation hearing. In addition, Judge Kevin Gross in Delaware will hold a hearing on the Philadelphia Energy Solutions debtor's motion seeking approval of implementation conditions for an exit intermediation facility. On Tuesday, Judge Shelley Chapman will oversee a hearing in Lehman Brothers Holdings, Inc. on approval of the settlement between the plan administrator and Credit Suisse. The settlement would resolve the last outstanding fight in Lehman's so-called Big Banks litigation. Tuesday looks to be a busy day for relativity, with Judge Michael Weil set to consider the U.S. trustee's motion to dismiss or convert the 2015 bankruptcy cases. The court will also hold a pretrial conference in Relativity's adversary proceeding against Netflix in the bankruptcy cases filed this year. Moving to Wednesday, we'll see an omnibus hearing in the Puerto Rico Title III cases, and the House Committee on Natural Resources will hold an oversight hearing with the title Management Crisis at the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority and Implications for Recovery. The Gibson Brands debtors will also seek approval of their disclosure statement at a hearing in Delaware. Staying in Delaware Bankruptcy Court, the M&G debtors will present a motion to extend their exclusive periods to file and solicit a Chapter 11 plan. Also coming up on Wednesday is a hearing in the Toysa Limited cases on supplemental sale procedures relating to the debtors' ocean-going and offshore vessels. Thursday, July 26th, we'll see earnings calls from GNC, Affinion, and SuperValue, as well as the confirmation hearing for VER Technologies and omnibus hearings in Toys R Us and Pacific Drilling. To close out the week, Community Health Systems will hold its second quarter earnings call on Friday. Now I'm going to hand it off to Teresa Lee, who's with our Reorg First Day team, to discuss bankruptcy trends in the first half of 2018. So here today from the Reorg First Day team are Jessica Steinhagen and Ian Howland for the quarterly Reorg First Day update. Reorg First Day provides timely alerts and expert analysis of new Chapter 11 filings with liabilities of over $10 million and tracks trends and filings through the First Day database. So Jessica and Ian, last time you were here, you gave us an update on what happened in the bankruptcy industry in the first quarter. What can you tell us about what's happened since then? What are some of the newer trends that we've seen? Thanks, Teresa. Looking back on the first half of the year, we noticed a new spike in filings from the farming, media, firearms, and technology industries. So interestingly, some of those industries that have more traditionally been seen as fairly defensive industries have been hit by bankruptcy bankruptcy filings, including uh, farming, as you mentioned, saw a spike, and supermarkets and healthcare. So let's start with the grocery stores. What can you tell us about what's happening there? Absolutely. Uh, Consumer staples cases were high in the first half and included large supermarket chains like Tops and Bilo, both of which filed in the first quarter. Tops has stores in the northeast and Bilo's are in the southeast. Bilo also operates under the Winn-Dixie, Harvey's, Fresco E. Moss banners. Both supermarkets were large, with each reporting over a billion in liabilities. Bilo filed a prepack, while Tops didn't file with the plan but started negotiations with an ad hoc note holder group before the filing and sought dip financing that required entry into an RSA within 75 days of the bankruptcy filing. Tops was also dealing with union issues, which are common for grocery debtors. So almost hand-in-hand with supermarkets are farms, and we've seen a few of those, right? Right. 
Um, farmers and food distributors have been filing at a higher rate in 2018, with a 120% surge in Farm Chapter 11s this half compared to last year. The bulk of the food distribution filers and farm filers have been in the cattle and sweet potato industries. The cattle and sweet potato farmers are about 65% of the total. The consumer staple sector as a whole is up 100% with respect to Chapter 11 cases over the first half of the year. Wow, 100% in the consumer staple sector is definitely interesting. Um, What can you tell us about the farm filing specifically? Well, some have speculated that it's due to continued declines in the receipts for dairy, wheat, corn, and cotton. Um, The U.S. Department of Agriculture has projected those declines. Um, But it will be interesting to see the effect of the administration's tariffs and counter-tariffs by other countries on farms and whether it will cause some to file for bankruptcy in the face of these new tariffs. And, of course, we can't talk about farms without talking about food. Were there any notable restaurant cases in the second quarter? Yeah, Bertucci's and the Garces Restaurant Group, which is owned by Food Network Iron Chef Jose Garces, both filed in the second quarter. Bertucci's, like many of the restaurant filers before, blamed tough competition from fast casual restaurants. Bertucci's in particular pointed to the consumers changing preferences for cheaper and faster food options, while Garces blames focused on the closure of the Revel Casino in Atlantic City, where some of his restaurants were located. Garces was also facing minority shareholder insider litigation. There was also RMH Holdings, a franchisee for 159 Applebee's restaurants. It said it is the second largest Applebee's franchise in the country. RMH primarily blamed its filing on challenges facing the Applebee's brand itself, which it says suffered more than a 5% decline in same-store sales in 2016. The company also accused Applebee's of lagging behind its competitors in the bar and grill space and says certain new initiatives required by the franchisor, like wood-fired grill upgrades and a new ad campaign, did not work for customers. That's unfortunate. So finally, another industry that's generally thought of as being pretty stable is healthcare. What's going on there? Healthcare filings made up roughly 9% of all cases during the first half of the year and consisted primarily of hospital operators, physician service providers, and pharmaceutical companies. Hospital operators made up almost 70% of the chapter, of the chapter 11 filings in the sector. Um, healthcare providers, like the year's biggest with respect to li- liabilities, which was HCR Manor Care, are still facing headwe- headwinds from increasingly familiar themes that date back several years, like decreasing reimbursement rates for services performed, as well as falling census numbers. Elements Behavioral Health, which filed in the second quarter, also struggled to grow or maintain census numbers and filed in pursuit of a sale of its drug and alcohol addiction treatment business. The second quarter filings of healthcare companies had a lot of sales, including Sincelio Pharmaceuticals Company, Elements Behavioral Health, which is a rehab provider, and ABT Molecular Imaging, which makes biomarkers. Both Sincelio and Elements Behavioral Health entered bankruptcy with stocking horse bidders. Also, Metazone, which is the subject of an involuntary filing, is also looking to sell its assets. Metazone makes a disinfectant, disinfectant used in hospitals and got a stocking horse bid from the company's former CEO and his wife. That case was converted to Chapter 7, and the sale is being run by the trustee. And, of course, there continues to be spillover from retail, which is still struggling with the threat of e-commerce and declining foot traffic. That's right, Teresa. Uh, Toys R Us, the big retail case from 2017, spilled over into 2018, not just with its own Chapter 11, but also with the filing of toy manufacturer Play Hut. 
Playhut's biggest customer is Toys R Us, and it filed at the end of May because of the major retailer's bankruptcy filing and its subsequent liquidation announcement in March. Fashion retailers have continued to file, too, with companies ranging from the largest like Bonton and Claire's to smaller chains like Agachi, Charlotte Olympia, and luxury brand J. Mendel. What would you say has been the largest component of the retail filers? Shoe companies have been especially prevalent, accounting for almost 30% of the cases going back as far as 2016. Last quarter, large chains like Nine West and Rockport filed. For retail chains as a whole, though, fashion makes up the majority with 61%. Retailers that exclusively sell women's fashion account for about 60% of apparel chain Chapter 11 cases over the last 12 months, while retailers catering exclusively to men account for only 7%. What did you see recently for the consumer discretionary sector as a whole in the last quarter? The month of May was particularly busy with consumer discretionary cases, accounting for about 45% of the month's cases, up from its 2018 average of 26%. One of these filers in May was Plant Nursery Business Color Spot, which was the fourth wholesale nursery business we covered over the last two years. Color Spot reported more than $100 million in liabilities. ColorSpot was also the largest nursery to file in a while, after BFN Operations, which runs Alenka Farms, which filed back in 2016. Like a few previous nursery nursery plant companies, ColorSpot pointed to a drought as a major reason for its bankruptcy. So aside from retail, another industry facing significant market headwinds is the firearms industry. Can you tell us about what's happening there? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, The surprise 2016 presidential election outcome sabotaged the high hopes of gun manufacturers. Prior to the election, manufacturers increased production and retailers stocked inventory under the expectation that the likely Clinton victory would spur gun demand due to fear of stricter gun laws. After Clinton lost the election, gun demand sagged, straddling firearm distributors with debt and excess inventory in a market of tumbling prices. Remington was the largest in the industry to file, and AccuSport and Extreme Bullets followed suit shortly after. Interesting. Now, several notable media companies also filed for Chapter 11 in the first half of the year. What did you find interesting about those cases? There were a few big names that filed, um, such as iHeart, the Weinstein Company, and Relativity. iHeart was the biggest case of the year for all industries as the only case to report more than $10 billion in liabilities. In the second quarter, film producer Relativity filed its second bankruptcy in about two years. The company was struggling to secure the debt or equity capital it needed to execute its post-reorganization business plan after emerging from its first case about a year ago. Relativity filed this time in pursuit of a sale. Other media companies also filed to sell their assets, including various newspapers like the Charleston Gazette Mail, the Boston Herald, and Alaska Dispatch News. So we've been hearing for some time that media has been in trouble, but can you tell us specifically what's going on with these bankruptcies? Sure. The newspapers are also struggling against an increasingly digitized world as more people consume their news over the internet instead of print. So let's go back for a minute to the energy sector. This is another spillover sector from previous years. And for those who believed that the oil and gas bust was over, that appears not to have been the case. True. Last month was very busy with energy cases. Four filed ranging from oil and gas services company Geokinetics to exploration and production companies Fulcrum Exploration and Nichols Brothers, as well as coal supplier Kimmel's Coal. All of these June cases reported between $10 million and $50 million in liabilities. 
For the year to date, there have been 17 energy cases, of which over 70% are exploration on production companies, and about 30% provide services, equipment, or support for the oil companies. This is a change from 2017, when the exploration and production companies accounted for less than half of the sector's cases in the first half of the year. Now, finally, one sector that's seen a significant increase in bankruptcy filing so far this year is one that may be a surprise to some of our listeners, and that's the technology sector. Can you elaborate on what types of technology companies have filed and what problems they're struggling with? Yeah, absolutely. So the tech industry is undergoing something similar to what we're seeing in the consumer staples sector this year. While neither in recent years has accounted for any significant share of Chapter 11 cases, their increases in filings so far in 2018 have both been by a factor of around two. Software developers make up the majority, followed by developers of semiconductor technology for the solar power industry. Some of the developers have had difficulties or delays in bringing their technology to market successfully and ran out of funding to keep operations going, while others blamed the prol proliferation of Chinese manufacturers in the market, resulting in depressed prices. Many of the companies commenced their cases to pursue an asset sale of the business or its patent portfolio. So for example, Candy Controls, which operates in the cloud-based Internet of Things space, fell short of funding and support to deal with long sales cycles and slow growth in the utility industry. The company filed seeking to sell its business for $2.6 million to Altar Engineering. There was also Aircont Vision, which develops IP-based megapixel surveillance cameras. Um, the company ran into liquidity strains as it faced increased competition from Chinese manufacturers who sell lower-end versions of their products at lower prices. Media production technology company BER Technologies, the biggest tech which was the biggest tech company to file during the period, also noted challenges resulting from an increase in Chinese manufacturers in the market, among other market challenges. So I want to switch gears for a little bit. Uh, what did you find was the busiest court district for filings so far this year? Delaware's share of filings is up significantly this year with respect to cases reporting over $100 million in liabilities when compared with last year. In 2017, Delaware had about 40% of cases involving liabilities in excess of $100 million, but in the first half of 2018, that number has climbed up to 63%. For all cases covered by REORG First Day, Delaware accounted for 25%, which represents the largest share of cases the district has had in a half-year period since the first half of 2016, when it made up just 17% of cases. On the other hand, the Southern District of New York and the Southern, Di the Southern District of Texas took their lowest shares of cases since 2016, with 7% and 6%, respectively. Now, finally, this is our traditional question um, about dip financing, but which companies requested the largest amount of dip financing? So Bonton's request for $725 million was the highest of the first half and almost double that of the runner-up, which was VER Technologies, which requested ABL and term loan facilities totaling roughly $365 million in the aggregate. In total, 10 companies requested more than $100 million in dip financing, including both new money and roll-ups of pre-petition debt, while nearly 40 companies requested less than $100 million. About a third of the dips requested included interest rates in excess of 10%, and there were a number of large default rates of interest, including one for 12%. Well, thanks, Jessica and Ian, for, as always, this update on the Reorg First Day database and the things that Reorg First Day is seeing in the bankruptcy and distressed spaces. There have been some interesting developments, for sure, with filings and we will definitely keep an eye on these trends uh, with Rework First Day. Thank you to all of our listeners, and thank you, Jessica and Ian, for joining me today. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Rework Research podcasts on our media page. 
Or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lung, and this has been The Week in New York. <laughs>